On this episode, Patrick McLaughlin, a senior research fellow and director of policy analytics here at Mercatus, discusses the latest economic situation report from Dr. Bruce Yandel, who is a distinguished adjunct fellow here at Mercatus. They talk about inflation, what to expect from the Fed for the remainder of 2023, and if we can expect a recession in 2024. If you would like to connect with a scholar featured on this episode, please email the Mercatus Outreach team at mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. I am Patrick McLaughlin, Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center, and I am here with Bruce Yandel, joined by Bruce again to discuss his latest economic situation report. Bruce Yandel, of course, is a dean emeritus at Clemson University and a longtime feature on this podcast. Bruce, it's a pleasure to be talking to you once again. Patrick, always glad to see and speak with you, especially about what's going on in the economy. Plenty to talk about. Indeed. There is plenty going on in the economy. Uh, we'll hope that that stays that way. <laughs> so let's discuss to start off with, we'll jump right into some of the things you discuss in your latest economic situation report. Let's start by talking about the, the difference between expectations we had in early 2022 and what ended up playing out. You know, you open your report by looking back and uh, seeing what, what people said back then in 2022, early 22, and the reality that unfolded, you describe expectations as being dashed by economic events. Right. Can you unpack that a bit for the audience? Sure, Patrick. And, and I guess we would start by saying what a difference a year makes if, it, if it's possible for us to go back in our minds to what things looked like. At about this time last year, or a little closer to January, February, there were reasons to be optimistic about the year ahead a year ago. GDP growth in the third quarter, which was probably the number that had just come out as the year turned, was better than 3%. Uh, It was better than 2% in the fourth quarter of the year before. And so as we got into January and February, inflation was bothersome, no doubt about it. But the prospects were good for continued growth, continued growth in employment and so forth. The Fed was very optimistic about controlling inflation, which they argued was transitory, not really fully embedded in the economy. And so the targeted interest rate that the Fed had then was a half a percent instead of the four and a half that we have now. And so then you say, wow, a lot happened to the Fed's position. What on earth brought those dramatic changes? And two things that I discuss. First off, inflation does continue to rage. It gets worse. And the Fed then comes to grips with the fact that, hey, if this is transitory, it surely is taking a long time to pass through. So the Fed starts hitting the brakes along about March a year ago. And then that gets to be a habit, continues to this day, as we know, and we will probably see the Fed notch up the rate when they meet on March the 22nd to review the situation. But the second thing that no one could have predicted was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so right there at the first of last year, uh, no one would have predicted that the Fed would not raise their interest rate target up to four and a half percent 
No one would have predicted that there were somebody might have predicted that Russia was going to invade Ukraine. Those two events come together. And so I describe them in a sense as a, a train crash, two locomotives hit head on. And then we get the reverberations through the economy. It's those are both game changing events. And now they are with us and the effects are with us. So we have a new day. And as I point out, drawing from that famous economist Elvis Presley, there's a whole lot of shaking going on. You have a um, a couple of other lines in the report that I want to dwell on a little bit. It's on on the same topic. You know, there's the arguments or perhaps the presentation of inflation as being transitory. No one's really making that that claim anymore, I don't think. But but at the time, it was it was popular, and I think you convey a sound lesson here that I'd like you to dwell on a bit. It's that the relationship between money and the economy still matters. What do you mean by that, and how how did how did they forget about that? Well, it's it's really interesting that in a way uh, lessons that we have learned over centuries about the relationship between the money supply and the price level. And that they are linked, never perfectly, but always positively linked. If you grow the money supply, you can predict the price level will rise, other things being equal. And what are the other things? The capability of the economy to respond with production and the rate at which money moves through the economy. And so in a short period of time, those two numbers don't change very much. So if you pump up the money supply, you can bet your boots that sometime out in the future, maybe 12 months, maybe 14, it varies, but sometime out in the future, you will see a price level effect. It's called the monetarist view of the economy. And so in a sense, there are two or have been two competing views if we want to put them in boxes. There's a Keynesian view of the economy that says how the government spends money and taxes. That, that's the important thing affecting demand. There's a monetarist view that says money matters. Don't forget it. And so in a sense, we are going back to the past. And I'm not saying learning lessons from the past, because interestingly enough, Patrick, we never get a We never hear mention of money supply and the monetarist view from our central bankers when they meet and talk about the economy. Uh, it's as if it's a taboo subject, and it may be because it's a subject that may relate to past administrations that are perhaps unpopular now. But for whatever reason, if we look back to 2021, at the growth in one of the definitions of money supply, it's called M2. Don't worry about the details. But if we look at growth in M2, it gets above 20% on an annual basis, year-over-year -year basis. Now, keep in mind what I had mentioned. If you hold constant the ability of the economy to produce real GDP in a short-term period, and if you hold constant the rate at which money travels through the economy, then if you get a 20% increase in the amount of money circulating, you can bet your boots that sometimes out there in the future, you're going to see a price level effect. We did. The price level effect came. Growth in the money supply continued. Well, we might pause for a moment here and say, well, wait a minute. 
what was making the money supply grow at such a high rate? It had to do with COVID. It had to do with the government's effort to cushion the effects, the terrible effects of the economy shutdown. And so most of us got some checks in our mail or deposited in our bank account, courtesy of the United States government. And that's M2, my friends. That's money supply coming into the economy. And so there it came, about $3 trillion worth. Sometimes it's called helicopter money. It's as if a helicopter flew over and just dropped money in our backyards. And what did we want to do with the money? We wanted to spend it. And what was out there to spend it on? Not a lot because the economy had been shut down. In fact, we couldn't even find a restaurant to go and go out for dinner. Gradually, that changed. But Patrick, there is still what's called excess savings in the economy, about $900 billion worth of that helicopter money is still not spent. And people are waiting in line to buy new automobiles. For example, that suggests we've got some other doses of inflationary pressure still in the economy. And as you mentioned in the report, while inflation has slowed, it's it's still there. As you point out now, we're probably going to see more of it for for a while, who knows how long. Uh, the Fed is certainly acting to try to reduce inflation. What are the ramifications of that? I think we've discussed before the the possibility of recession. You discuss it in, in the report. Many, many are predicting a pretty slow year for the economy overall, in large part because of the the induced changes in the economy from the Fed changing its own interest rates. Um, so we, you know, we could see the economy slow down, but on the other hand, we have we have employment, which is maybe not not matching expectations, or or is it? Why don't we talk a, a bit about employment? There's a, there's there seems to be a disconnect when we look at employment, uh, and we still see the signs on the windows in any community we drive through now hiring. We all are aware that everything seems to be understaffed, no matter where we turn. People are trying to hire. We have an incredibly low unemployment rate. But let's back up for just a minute. What has happened to M2, that money supply growth that I mentioned that exceeded 20% back in 2021? Well, the latest numbers that we have indicate that in December just passed, Growth in M2 was negative. The money supply is shrinking. That is, the Fed is making this happen, but nobody talks about money supply. They talk about interest rates. But but interest rates, of course, have gone up. Chairman Powell is testifying right now as we speak, uh, indicating we're going to see more interest rate increases. But the Fed is doing something else. They are allowing a huge investment in United States government bonds and other government issues to run off the balance sheet. That is, they are not replacing those bonds. The bonds mature, they get paid off, and they are not being replaced. And that means the money supply is shrinking rather dramatically. So negative growth in money supply in December. Okay, let's look out 12 months. That suggests by the end of this year, or the first of 2024, 
we could have a pretty severe recession. By severe, I don't mean 2008, but what I mean is a recession that we would know is happening. And when we look at employment, which seems like an anomaly, Patrick, as you mentioned, when you look at employment in terms of hires and additions to payroll, those numbers are still strong. If you carve a little bit deeper, and we do this in the report, and we look at new job openings in the economy, those numbers have fallen dramatically. And also, if we look at the hiring of temporary workers, the growth rate there has fallen dramatically. And so parts of the economy are reflecting the slowing down, but that excess savings that we still have, all of those firms out there that are trying to get staffed up are still hiring, but the prospects for new hires have diminished significantly. So about 12 months from now, we should look for meaningful slowing in the economy. And by that, I mean negative growth in real GDP. Many of our uh, listeners are probably based in the D.C. area, given the policy focus of this podcast. And one piece of activity that's related to people that live in this area is the activity of Amazon. Uh, Amazon, of course, a huge tech company. People know they're based out of Seattle, but their HQ2, so-called headquarters HQ2 here in, in Arlington, is a is a big thing in the area. But Amazon recently announced that they're going to pause the construction of, of HQ2. They've announced at least one major round of layoffs as well. Other tech companies had started announcing layoffs, I think even before the last time I spoke to you three months ago. But I, I wonder, Bruce, is this are the tech companies adjusting only to the Fed's actions uh, in response to inflation, or is there something else going on? And and as a follow up, if you can, is this going to spread to other sectors, or is tech likely to be the hardest hit for some idiosyncratic reason? I think again we go back a year ago, and again we can say what a difference a year makes. But when I say that. It's important for us to look at the economy through a different lens with respect to the question and the issue you just raised. The economy is lots of things, but it's also an information system. All of us as participants in the economy get information from the economy. We get information on prices, wages, job openings, inflation, interest rates, it tells us what the prospects might be for us if we were thinking about buying a house or changing jobs or building a new headquarters, as is the case with Amazon, or opening up new activities, as it has been the case with many of the tech companies. And so as an information system, we rely on that information and we make decisions on the basis of it. But what if the information changes dramatically? once we have made our decisions. Well, then we have to say, oops, looks like I made a bad decision. But he, but we seldom say, I think the data were bad. Well, saying that doesn't really matter because we live with the data, and sometimes the data turns on us, which causes what had been 
a logical and reasonable decision to turn out to be a loser. And so Amazon announces two locations for a split of corporate headquarters. Big news. Looks really great for a booming area in North Virginia. Uh, lots of people, thousands are going to be added. And all of a sudden, things the world has changed. There's a whole lot of shaking going on, and they say, sorry, we've got to revise. And so in some cases, the CEOs of those companies have literally apologized, as we can understand they would want to, to the employees that they're laying off. But let's add one other dimension to this, Patrick. There was a huge increase in hiring for these same firms a year and a half, two years ago. Interest rates were almost at zero in terms of the Fed's preferences. Money was falling out of helicopters. And there just wasn't enough stuff out there available for people who wanted to buy, and firms were expanding. Now, now the helicopters are fewer in number. They're smaller. The bundles are getting smaller. The Fed is raising interest rates. And so what looked like good decisions before all of that happened have turned. And so for those of us as actors in the economy, I think what we would like to have is good information predictable information, information that doesn't suddenly change from good to bad or from bad to good when we are out here making decisions. And, and by the way, you mentioned in your report uh, Hayek's paper from the, the 30s, I think th 1934, right? The Use of Knowledge in Society. That's right. That is in the public domain. You can find it online very easily. It's a very accessible paper. And I would, that's actually the single economics paper I would recommend the most to any anyone interested in the dynamics that you were just describing, how there's signals in these prices or other market signals that can be used to make good choices. But if there's, if there's some sort of glitch in how the signal gets passed along, or if there's bad information injected into the system to begin with, then you sometimes get some bad choices. Yes, and Patrick, it may be worth interjecting uh, right here that what we are talking about is is a miracle to begin with. That was the thing, the market process, the fact that spontaneously this world gets organized every morning and we go to the grocery store and the shelves are full of stuff we want to buy, 20 flavors of Gatorade. <laughs> Somebody had to think through all of that. Well, how did all that happen? It happened on the basis of prices and profits, markets operating. And so the market as an information system that enables us to use that information in building our society is something that's worth talking about and celebrating yeah, absolutely. When I first read that paper, I had already appreciated markets, but that really opened my eyes to the miracle, as you say, of of how all this information from dispersed sources, everyone has their own unique little spots, somehow works out together to tell people who make Gatorade that you need to invent another flavor and put it <laughs> on the market. Let's uh, let's turn back a little bit and talk more inflation, talk about the Fed and its relationship to the economy overall. You discuss how as the Fed raises interest rates, 
they are in turn responsible for paying banks, big banks in a lot of cases, more for the reserves that are, that they're holding. Can you explain how this works and where the Fed is getting all this money to pay the banks? Sure. First off, the Fed normally generates net revenues. You could say it generates a profit, generates net revenues, revenues in excess of its expenditures every year normally. And they send a big check to the United States Treasury. That big check runs in the range of $100 billion each year. This is the first year we're in right now since the Fed was formed in 1915 when it's running at a loss. And so the Fed is sending an IOU to Treasury now saying we'll catch up in better times. The reason they're running at a loss is that Though a lot of those government bonds that they let run off that I mentioned earlier are no longer there generating interest income. And so their interest income has fallen sharply. So the Fed is sort of in the poor house. Nothing for us to worry. It doesn't mean that anybody's going bankrupt or that our economic system is, is dying. Doesn't mean that at all. But it's an indication of going through the ringer. As they say, it'll all come out in the wash, but it was hell going through the ringer. Well, we're going through the ringer right now as we adjust from all of the stimulus that was there during COVID days to war, to high inflation, and the Fed hitting the brakes. Back to banks. Back in 2008, when we had the Great Recession, and a lot of banks were in serious trouble, the Fed and Treasury and the FDIC, Comptroller of Currency, all had one thing keeping them awake at night, I hope, and that was, will the banking system make it, or are we going to have failures of banks with long lines of people waiting to try to get their money out? A lot was done to keep the banks going, and one of the things that was done with legislation in 2008 was to require the Fed to pay interest on banks' excess reserves. Under our system, any bank participating in our economy has to, make, has to maintain a reserve at the Fed, and the reserves are there to call on should more people come and knock on the door saying, I want to pull my money out of the bank and out of the banking system. It's a huge amount of money. And when the helicopters flew over that I mentioned earlier and unloaded lots of money into our checking accounts, that gave the banking system a huge increase in reserves, like $3 trillion. Normally in the past, with $3 trillion in reserves would not mean more income for banks because they were not paid interest. But before 2008. Before 2008. Right. And so now there's a huge payment that's being made. It wasn't all that big when the Fed's overnight interest rate was 0.5, but it gets to be pretty healthy when it's four and a half on $3 trillion. It's a lot of money that is going into the bank's operations. And so now we've got a policy question. Does it make sense 
when we no longer have a 2008 recession that generated the necessity to do this, does it make sense when the Fed itself is operating at a loss for it to be shoveling a lot of money out to big banks that are quite profitable, generally speaking, now? Or isn't it time to revisit this whole thing and gradually move away from it, as opposed to shockingly move away from it? Sounds like that would require congressional action, right? If this uh, if this this approach was created by statute in 2008 in the first place, then I guess revision probably would require another another statute. Yeah, it it would, and probably this would probably be the worst possible time <laughs> to try to initiate or try to line up the lobbyists. In other words, who is it that's going to be knocking on the door other than? A, half, a handful of economists <laughs> have been watching this process, but uh, we are not the only one, the handful of economists. Uh, there are others watching in the policy apparatus. And so it may be that this becomes a timely topic for discussion along with others that are being discussed on the Hill. Indeed. Well, we're three months into 2023. And I wonder what your predictions are for the remaining months of, of this year, if you want to uh, talk about that for a few minutes. Sure. The, uh, if, if we, uh, in, a, in our minds, let's try to picture the calendar. We are in the first quarter of the year right now. It's about to be over. And most likely, we are going to have a pretty healthy GDP growth number. By healthy, I mean greater than zero, maybe close to 2%. In this particular quarter, uh, there's a lot of movement going on, and so it's sort of hard to pin down. But nonetheless, as I see things, the first half of this year through June, maybe on into July, will be a period of time with positive growth. The effects of the Fed's interest rate run-up is already hitting the housing sector on the chin pretty hard. It will begin to hit other sectors. For example, if we look at a map, if you picture a map of the United States, and if you were looking at economic indicators for the states, right now, 13 of the states are showing negative economic indicators. Most of those are in the upper northeastern northern tier of the country. That's a change in just three months. Three months ago, they were all positive. And so it's cloudy with the prospects for more rain. So we can expect those clouds to get darker and what might be thought of as the rain of a recession to become more noticeable. And so I've got a pretty happy picture through about June or July. By that, I mean no recession, sort of slow, but in the range of 2% growth. Then we've got that negative growth in money supply that's working its way into the economy with a lag, and it begins to hit us there in the third quarter and the fourth quarter, maybe on into the first quarter of the year ahead. That's where I think we will see negative growth in GDP, not big negative like 2008, but negative in the sense of 1% negative, perhaps as we end this year. And so then uh, as we look forward into 2024, that dip gets behind us 
depending on what the Fed does uh, with that money supply number. And right now, that's an unknown. Uh, In fact, those cookies aren't even in the oven right now. But somebody will be putting the chocolate chip ingredients on the counter between now and then, and we will find out what happens to M2. Well, before we go, I did want to ask you about your reading recommendations, in particular because this quarter you discussed a George Mason professor's work, Pete Leeson's work, his 2009 book, The Invisible Hook, Yes, which I, I would tell tell listeners uh, that actually probably is a good tie-in to Hayek and the appreciation of the market process. But uh, do you want just for a couple of minutes, are there any lessons you've taken from that book that today's policymakers could learn from 18th century pirates, which is the topic of the book? First off, Patrick, I would say the first lesson that I learned from it is it's possible for an economist to write a doggone good book. Yes, Pete's a great author. <laughs> an entertaining book. Yeah, not just for other economists, but a book that anybody, I think, would enjoy and gain from reading. Because what Pete Leeson has done, if the book is called The Invisible Hook, and it's a play on Adam Smith's Invisible Hand, and what Pete is the lesson he's teaching by telling us about the history of piracy and how pirates organized the economy on board ship and in their ventures carefully in order to maximize profits, minimize costs, keep their business alive. He shows very carefully the steps that were taken. And interestingly enough, the pirate ships were democracies where the crew got to vote and elect and keep in office their captains. Well before 1776 and 4th of July, you had these floating democracies out there in the world of piracy. It was a brutal world, as we all know. But one of my favorite chapters in the book was the chapter about the Jolly Roger, the flag that we all think about with the skull and crossbones. They came in different formats, as Pete tells us. But the Jolly Roger was something that was a signal that went up when a pirate vessel found its prospective prey. They might have a false flag flying, but when they get in sight, of their prey, they run up the Jolly Roger. And the Jolly Roger was a signal that said, surrender immediately, do not resist us, and you may get to share in the loot. Resist us, all of you will be killed, and we will burn your ship afterwards. And so a lot of their victims became joined the effort and sometimes became part of piracy. But Pete tells these fascinating stories, but he always stops to, in a sense, to say, okay, let's interpret this now through using the lens of economics. And he does it in a very attractive and low-key way. I'm high on this book. I just wish I had read it sooner, Patrick. Pete does have a a very accessible style as well. I I would also recommend him to to listeners. Uh, He's written... He's a prolific author, uh, so this, if you're if you're looking for more to add to your list, I'm sure you can find subsequent books that Pete has done. He has, I think, one on on witches and the uh, sort of the markets that are created in those worlds as well. 
But anyway, we are out of time. And thank you once again, Bruce, for for joining us and enlightening us as always. And I look forward to talking to you again when we've seen more of the ingredients for future cookies. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Great being with you. You too. The Mercatus Policy Download is produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Explore our research on pressing policy problems at mercatus.org. And for even more, follow us on Twitter at Mercatus. Mercatus.